you start go go welcome lbc uh those those that are attending live and those that are looking at the recording later um this is um our first recording of what we hope to do uh, as a weekly recording um or a weekly zoom session uh between dr draper and myself um my name is dan spanger you know me as the history professor here and dr mark draper who um is our one of our key librarians over there and also a history guy uh, we are the two history doctors um we have been studying between us. I'd hate to even mention how long, Mark, at this point. Maybe, maybe the life of, a, of, of an actual adult, 20 years. Yeah. Oh, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I don't want to speak for Mark. I think I have less hair than he does. So probably means I'm older. I got an earlier start than you. I grew up in Philadelphia. You can't miss him. <laughs> History's all around. It's everywhere. You're walking. Yeah, I was on a farm. There was no history there, really. Um, we, the point of these um, meetings is really just to, uh, to talk through what we're all facing uh, at this point as, um, as Christians, not necessarily just as LBC, although that's where we all are, so that's what we'll be thinking through. Um, but we find ourselves in a novel time historically. Um, as historians, this is exciting because we're watching history happen, and um, our great-great-grandchildren, who will all be history majors, I'm sure, at least that's in my contract with my children, have to have one history major per generation. Um, but they're going to be writing about this one day and what changed in the world. So it's kind of exciting that way. Um, but we believe that also studying history provides some insight, um, some help to how the church has gone through this before. Uh, we'll be right up front. We're really talking as Christian thinkers, um, observers, learners, um, trying to find out how our Christian faith comes to bear in a moment like this. Uh, Mark and I are the, uh, the most useless kind of doctors available. Uh, we at a time of coronavirus, can be called at any minute to answer any of your history questions. Um, we'll put our phone numbers up for speed dial. I think your healthcare does cover this. Isn't that right, Mark? There's a... We, we, are, we consider ourselves uh, historical first responders. That's right. We're in the era yeah. of first responders. We, we can answer any of those questions. Yeah. Yeah. You feel something. You wake up in the middle of the night and you've got this burning question. Um, if you're choking at a restaurant, you don't want us to help you. But not helpful. If, uh, if, you, if you have a fever like, for several I can't days, sleep call tonight because I need to know when the flu epidemic of 1918 started where your guys yeah when did the war of 1812 start i mean that's the kind of thing that we can jump in on it's very quickly at any time yeah, yeah. we're ready to go yeah. um mark and i not only teach at lbc mark does some history courses for me as well um, we've been friends outside of that we both wrote our dissertations under the same uh the same history scholar so we've got some connections but we're also developing um, a regular podcast um, that we'll be putting out and these recordings will go there just as full disclosure um, and that's going to be called Unlikely Pilgrims, and uh, we'll be putting links up to that so you can follow it. Our goal is not to really advance the podcast at this point. It's really just to connect with students, uh, the community here at LBC, as we walk through this, er this era, this, this crazy time. What we'll do today is Mark and I are just going to chat for the next 20 or 30 minutes and just sort of share some of our observations and what we're learning through this. And then we're going to be bringing in some faculty over the next several weeks. We're going to go um, a recording per week. Um, we're going to do it at around 2 p.m. I say at 2 p.m. every Friday from here for the rest of the semester. Um, we've got people like um, um, Esther Zimmerman, who teaches in our CML department. We'll be interviewing her, Mark Farnham, uh, Dr. Joe Kim, um, and others soon to be named. I don't want to, I don't want to get everybody excited. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I'll leave that out. But you'll be seeing these announcements come. And if you miss it, or if you have missed it, the recordings will be posted uh, for your later viewing. So if there's anything by way of introduction, Mark, that I missed. No, I, it, I think what maybe this helps where we want to move this uh, and even the podcast is what, what Dan and I spend a lot of time just thinking about the history of ideas and the history of the church and, and how the church is engaged in ideas and experiences. And one of the ideas we, we've thought is how can we help Christians uh, navigate uh, being sort of a, a member of the kingdom of God, but also living in the kingdom of man, living in through situations like this. And so on one hand, you know, we, this, this, this situation, these pandemics are a great example of that tension we feel because okay. we know death has been destroyed. We know death doesn't have its sting. Yet, I still keep seeing the statistics in my social media feed about how many people have died. Yeah. Um, so that's part of what the idea of the podcast is going to be, is to help through various disciplines, not just history. So don't feel like you're just going to get bored by two historians all the time. Um, no, it's we really do want to look at various uh, disciplines. And it's precisely why we're asking different professors from different disciplines to come in and, and help us think through pandemic 
from their experience or say in the case of Dr. Mark Farnham, just what is it like dealing with suffering? Um, and in fact, Mark is actually working on a book on that right now. So I think that's super helpful. Yeah, and Mark, you, you brought up a word when we were first talking through this, and I think it's a helpful verb to keep in mind that we realize, we realize in our own lives as Christians, but through our own study, that Christians really have a lot of negotiation to do. They, they don't just bring their, their biblical ideas and just sort of plunk them down on the table like a big reference Bible, um, you know, and say, here's what I believe. We've got to somehow negotiate the, the, the panic of the world, the difficulty, its answers, things like science and medicine with our faith. And so it's an ongoing conversation. Uh, Mark, I think, and I, and, and most, obviously most Christians, we're not novel in that regard, don't believe that Christianity just throws answers out at problems, right? We, we're part of society and we're part of our modern age. And so how do we negotiate that? How, how do we balance out our trust in science, which has done marvelous things. Mark was just mentioning off camera a couple minutes ago, the, the incredible advances in medicine that, that the modern world has made. And yet, despite all of man's best efforts, the Christian sits back and goes, I know this is going to fail at some point. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend, Mark, and I didn't, I don't know if I told you this, but he's a, he's a cardiologist here, Christian guy, probably one of the, one of the best known cardiologists, if not in the region, in the country. And he said, he realizes what he's doing is just buying people time. He'll, he'll, he'll save someone's life in a heart mm -hmm. surgery mm -hmm. and six years later, they're going to die of something else. And sure. there's this realization that as much as science can do, there's things it can't do. And this is where the church has a lot to say. Like, how do we yeah. encourage people? Yes, go, yes, do social distancing and, and be careful, but don't think that by social distancing or eating, taking your vitamin C that somehow you're going to solve this. That the reality is you're still facing death because you're fallen and you need Christ. And, so there's negotiation has to happen. We don't we don't just have all the answers. We've got to talk it, it out. It's even even when we look at we look at the the church historically they they've lived in that tension. Um, recently, since I'm home and I'm watching Netflix documentaries, <laughs> and and I, I watched a fascinating documentary on the Mayo Clinic. In fact, if if you're bored at home and you're quarantined and you want to watch this, and you have that, that board. We're talking that board. Yeah, yeah. Right? That okay. board, yeah. Okay, and all right. What was fascinating about the Mayo Clinic is that while the Mayo, the, the Mayo family, particularly the founder, was a self-proclaimed agnostic, um, and I'm not really sure his sons, what their religious background was, but they worked with a convent uh, to build this place. So here you have a case where uh, you have a situation where you have the, the church actually working to address uh, suffering and medicine. Uh, and how many, how many Christian, Christians in the past have been involved in being cardiologists, developing vaccines, things like that. So we do live in that tension. And, but we, we kind of realize, okay, yes, I, yes it's, I believe that God is sovereign and God is in control, but that also means I just don't throw up my hands and say, well, if you get the virus, you get the virus. Right. Uh, so it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a negotiation there and you see it all through scripture. I think you see it all through scripture, this negotiation of what we are dealing with. And here we are, uh, as Christians in, in America at this time, and we're living in this negotiation between yeah. just like you said. Um, but I think too, particularly with pandemics, Dan, I think, and, and this is one of the reasons we want to talk to people from various traditions or various disciplines too, is, um, this is new to us in America, but there's, you know, in the last 20 years, there's been pandemics in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, and SARS, Ebola, um, MERS. And so these are cases where Christians outside the Western world have had to negotiate this type of thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. yeah, I think that's good. And I think what, I think maybe what in part of that conversation, what we miss is that we, even, we haven't really carefully thought through um, a two-stage vocabulary, right? A vocabulary of temporary hope, um, compassion, I'm going to help you. I think we can use good medicine, but that there's an ultimate hope beyond that. And I think probably in the West, uh, if, we, if you and I were thinking about how the, the Western mind has changed over the past 150 years, or maybe since the late Enlightenment, has been that those two hopes have gotten blurred or merged together. And so to yeah. say I care for you means I'm going to try to extend your life and make you comfortable. Mm -hmm. When in fact, as a Christian, I, I, that's, a, that's a mistake to blur those two things. I've got, a, I've got a, a temporary hope that I want you out of poverty and I want you well and I want you healthy, but I'm, I'm lying to you if I think that's, that's the only thing for your best. I really need to use that to point you to another hope. And 
And maybe what the third world churches have figured out, and you and I have talked about the black church probably having a better answer for this than, than a, lot of, um, a lot of other churches, is those two hopes have to be distinct somehow. We've got to work for the one while we're not ignoring the fact that our ultimate hope has to be somewhere else. Yeah. And I, I would say too, I think, um, so when, when this pandemic first emerged, um, I did something very dorky. Uh, <laughs> what, for once in your life? For once in your life? I, I, I started reading about historic pandemics uh, and, and watching documentaries on And my wife is like, why are you doing that? Like, you know, is this some sort of masochistic thing I need to know about? And I said, no, actually, it gives me comfort to, to understand how people in the past have dealt with these things um, and, and understanding the story and this type of thing. And what I, what I came to realize um, and, and, and I've posted about this in social media. I'm a Philly guy. One of my favorite history things, study of history is history in Philadelphia. And when the pandemic happened in 1918, the, one of the worst cities hit by this was Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, over 200,000 people died uh, in Philadelphia alone just from the flu epidemic in 1918. And then I started doing a little homework and I even went on, did a little uh, Ancestry.com and, and confirmed my, my suspicion that all of my grandchildren, except, well, I'm sorry, all of my grandparents except one were infants or toddlers during that mm. in Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, and not one of them died. Mm. And realizing that had one of them died, I'm not here. Right. I'm not here with you. And, and there's a certain comfort in that to say that while um, when I had zero control over washing my hands, social distancing, any of that kind of stuff. You were doing your best you could back in 1980. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that, that, that God still had a plan for me and that, I, um, that I'm here today. Right. But it also taught me this in this study is that we have lived in a very unique period the last 100 years. In fact, unprecedented in the history of humanity. That's right. Uh, the fact is that uh, I'm currently teaching a, a class on the American Civil War for arts and sciences. And I've said this to my class that the medicine during the Civil War was medieval compared to. And, and it's really the period between the American Civil War and 1918 when a lot of these uh, germ theory develops, right? From, from a doctor in Germany named Dr. Lister think Listerine, antiseptic. Um, and so it was actually, Listerine was actually named after this guy. And so, um, but it, it happens there. And, and in the last hundred years, we have really been insulated yeah. uh, from a lot of pandemics and, uh, and granted, it's still been awful, right? It's still been bad, but particularly probably in the last 50 years, at least since World War II, um, particularly in America and the West, a lot of illnesses that would just wipe people out, like measles, has in some cases been eradicated. Right. Uh, and in fact, when, when the, again, if you're bored, there's a great documentary on Netflix on pandemics. And, <laughs> um, just casual but what's interesting is talking, hearing some of the scholars say that we know that our technology has enabled us to eradicate, almost eradicate certain diseases like measles, like this, like that. And when something emerges, you're really surprised by it. But they also realize that viruses mutate. And so therefore they have to be ever vigilant. But I think that's, so historically that's given me some comfort realizing why is this so hard for us? So Mark, and let me ask you, as a historian, you've been through this, is, I mean, I think, I think if, I, if I hear what you're saying, we, we put trust in our ability to solve our situations, which doesn't teach us perspective. Like, I mean, I think we, we rely on science to do this so that we don't have to, to think differently, right? We don't have to change our perspective. And, and yeah. maybe what, what you're saying, even by looking back into history a little bit, is to say, I've worked around technology to see what people normally have to go through to realize that we have a very thin view of our own lives, right? That it's, yeah, it's guaranteed yeah. to us where we should have it as long as we want it. This kind of thing shouldn't happen. Um, it seems like perspective might be not a solution, but at least a corrective. It, it, it's interesting you say that because even teaching, um, one of the other classes I was teaching, I was teaching the Reformation. 
uh, in the Middle Ages. And some of the students had said to me, you know, the chapter on the Black Plague means a lot more to me now than it did. <laughs> you know, if, you'd admit, if I had to read that at the beginning of the semester, I'm not really sure I could have fully processed that. Right. But now, and, and what was fascinating was that, you know, I, I had to go off script a bit even in the class because we got into this very good discussion about how the Black Plague affected right. uh, the church and affected even the Reformation. Uh, so yeah, so I think it's, it, it, is, it is very helpful to have this perspective. And I think part of even reading scripture, right, is to give us perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much of history, so much of the Bible is history. Right. Uh, there's a reason for that. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's really important. Well, and part of that perspective, Mark, and this is something I've been wrestling with, thinking through all of this, is that I think as Christians, we might we might distinguish between something that's accidental or natural, we say, like a plague and something like persecution. Um, one sounds rather intentional and one doesn't. But it seems like both of these things hit us as people in the same place, right? They, they hit us at our vulnerability. They hit us at our frailty. Um, they challenge our, our view of ourselves. They challenge our certainties. They challenge our confidence. Um, and, they, and they sort of strip us of maybe some things we held rather easily when things weren't going wrong, right? Very confident. Mm -hmm. yeah. God loves yeah. me. God's very happy with me. And all of a sudden this happens and we find that those confidences get shaken. And I, and I think, you know, even looking at what the church has done to face persecution, to understand that what they're living for is beyond this, that there's something to be learned from that, even if it's not a pandemic per se, because sometimes we don't have, we have some sermons and writing on that, but certainly on persecution, we've got a lot. And it seems to me there's something we could learn from those Christians as well. Yeah, and I, and I think, too, uh, in looking at this and, and, and going back and spending some time thinking about the church and suffering, I, I think the church sometimes uh, martyrdom and suffering for the faith almost can be a badge of honor. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I recently just took a trip to the UK um, and it was a church history trip. And there's markers where uh, John Knox was martyred and things like that. And that almost seems sort of uh there's a valor to that but to like die of typhus yeah you know sometimes feels like really like that 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 that, that didn't seem very uh, uh glorious right yeah. and i think i think that's that's a little harder for us to to wrap our minds around i mean we know from church history there's a whole cult of the martyrs that emerges right but mm -hmm. and most of those people were burned at the stake or tortured or some story like that but to say that this this wonderful parish preacher just happened to die of typhus or TB uh, sometimes seems like, God, that doesn't seem very glorious. That doesn't <laughs> sound, uh, you know, that's not going to make Fox's book of martyrs, is yeah. it? Um, so I, I think that's, that's part of it too. And trying to understand why some of these things happen. Um, and one of the things I've been drawn to, to Dan is this idea of lament can we just be free to lament? Yeah. Uh, we in the West aren't good at that. We're not good at lament. Uh, most of the times when I've learned about lament uh, from Christians, it's from my African brothers and sisters. It's from my Asian brothers and sisters where um, some of them have said, we, we, we accept suffering in a different way than the West. Yeah. Um, Dan, I want to ask you, do, do you think that one of the, maybe one of the issues too um, historically, because of this shift that's happened in the last 100 years, um, is it possible that one of the things we're wrestling with right now is that we in the West don't expect to suffer physically? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, there's an expectation that, you know, if you look at the way that culture and civilization were, we, we in an effort to solve things like suffering, maybe, maybe unnecessary suffering, right? The common cold, flu, yeah. we've got penicillin. What we've done, maybe inadvertently, is we've shoved suffering out of mainstream culture. And so it exists in the periphery. So we've got hospitals where you go and get sick, and you've got places where you go and die. And we don't interact with it. My wife will often comment the fact that in older society, it was common to die at home. Yeah. And it was common to have the body at home for a period of time of mourning. And even take pictures with it. Yeah, right. And now, yeah. and now we treat death like it doesn't belong to us. And, I, and again, yeah. here's where I think the perspective comes in. That's really unnatural. Yeah. I think we've made death so foreign to us that when it shows up, it's, it's, I mean, it's always unwelcome, but it becomes this really strange guest that we feel at some point we will just simply, you know, kick out of our house and go back to normal. And I, yeah. I think what the church, or at least what the gospel seems to say, 
is that our frailty is not something to be run away from, right? The incarnation, yeah. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll come, but I'm not going to be frail. He actually takes on frailty. And so we, in an effort to maintain that protection of our own life, actually try to distance ourselves from frailty. We try to take on medicines, protections, clothes, homes, whatever we need to. But I think the Christian, and, and maybe this is where the church was stronger in ages past, I'm, I'm, I may be speaking a little out of turn here, but I think they were more willing to accept frailty as part of their relationship to Christ, that, that Christ actually holds us in that place so that we don't get our fingers too tightly gripped around this world. Yeah. Um, and even to say, I, maybe I don't think I will, but I could live to 100 and be healthy. But when I see frailty in my neighbor, it teaches me my frailty. And I, I think when we push that stuff into hospitals and, and out of our view, mm. we tend to imagine that it's, a, it's an unwanted guest. And I think, I think, if anything, the modern mind has, has atrophied, or the modern heart, let's say, has atrophied mm-hmm. by this trust that somehow life is owed to us. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's the status quo. It's, well, it's, it's in our Declaration of Independence. I'm entitled <laughs> Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Right? And God signed it. He signed it right yeah, on the bottom there. Well, it's an Aaron is a, a scripture. Yes. It's there. Yeah, you um, can't get away with it. Well, it, it, it's, so it, it's funny you mentioned that because when you say that saints from the past uh, probably were more accepting of, of these types of things, I've I, uh, been searching, looking for articles on various people from church history and how they talked about suffering. And I found an interesting um, blog post written by a church history professor named Carl Truman. And, and Carl was asked the question, did the Puritans have a doctrine of suffering, a theology of suffering? And he said, yes, they did. Uh, but it wasn't something that maybe they would go around and talk about a lot, or they wouldn't see it as much the same way, because he said, most people in that, say, the 17th century, because of uh, water not being clean because you probably walked around with a low grade temperature anyway. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 so you, you were used to certain things. You almost, it was just, this is how it is. Right. And, and we've become almost sh- shaped the other way where it's like, well, that's not how it is anymore. Right. And, and so the question I have for you too, Dan, is do you think because the last hundred years has been so different, are we, what we're feeling is it possible we're feeling some grief? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it probably is. Um, I hadn't thought of it in terms of grief, but it makes sense. You know, we, we, we bargain with it. <laughs> we deny it. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're sure that, that the right medicine will help us out. Um, there's this, I have a friend uh, right now who's struggling with cancer, and I've watched our church community go through this. It's amazing, the stages, this denial, and then this bargaining, and then this acceptance. And watching Christ grow us as a community through this, and of course, we're praying desperately for her survival. Yeah. At the same time, the church community has changed a little bit in this, and I, I pray a lot. Um, and maybe, maybe that's what it is. We're grieving the loss of something we felt we had. We had security, and we feel it's been taken away from us. We had the freedom in the West with our money enough to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Yeah. Um, and in this case now, that's, that's been removed from us. Um, I haven't quite thought of it in terms of grief, Mark, but I, I think you're right. I, I usually think it's just in terms of confidence. And I, and I, something you said earlier, and I don't want to walk away from the grief comment, but something you said earlier that this is unusual. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. And I, I've told my class, I'm not necessarily a pessimist, but I don't believe the modern world is going to continue the way it always has. Um, that we live in an unusual time. The, the normal condition, as you said, you said low-grade fever. I mean, even the, even the, um, uh, the, the death rates, the uh, infant mortality rates. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the, I mean as early as the, as the early modern period, you know, you'd have a family lose 40, 50, 60% of their children you know, before adulthood was, was common. And it, it didn't make the pain of it less, yeah. uh, any less. But there was an understanding that this is what life is. It's a frail thing. And I I think if anything, and I'll, I'll add grief to it now that you've mentioned it, but I do think that there is a misplaced confidence mm-hmm. because of this art of, not artificial, but this unusual time in history that's granted us that. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is true what happens when, when it, it's like having, a, you know, maybe like a mechanical assistance to your body that would make you stronger. It actually atrophies your muscles. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been um, a, a confidence in the modern era that all of this can help us. And we've atrophied our courage. Uh, we've atrophied our wisdom. Like we, we don't think more broadly than our bellies or our comfort anymore. Um, it's atrophied our, our, um, um, our, maybe not our intelligence, but it's atrophied our hearts. Like, and mm-hmm. we become, uh, you, you say, you're saying uh, about things I'd read. I was just reading uh, Thomas Blake, who was a, 
16th century, 17th century Puritan preacher, and he was looking at the, there were some references to the plague in 1665, which killed 100,000 people in a summer. 25% of the population died in London in mm -hmm. 1665. Um, and he's preaching to his congregation, and he says that the God's judgment, he says, knock our fingers off of these things, the riches of this world, mm -hmm. knocks our fingers open mm -hmm. so that they open our eyes to possess us thoroughly with a sense of the vanity of these things and the true character and love of God. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think we as Christians are like buffeting against the, the breaking of our fingers from our comforts, mm -hmm. and that means that we're not clinging then to Christ's kingdom, which is not something we're going to get in fullness here. So. I yeah. like your grief thing. I'm going to have to. Yeah, I, I've read a couple articles, but more from a secular perspective of this. But I think okay. as Christians, have we, have we fall, fallen for the, the, well, we live in modern medicine, we live in the West, and, uh, and we're grieving that maybe we lost something. Uh, I mean, more than just being able to go out to dinner at night, right. uh, but a certain ins, ins, insulation. Yeah. Uh, have we lost some of that? I, I think, I think there's a fair to that. I mean, I, I have to admit, I there's a certain grief um, to seeing, you know, places that I love and seeing that they're empty. Right. Uh, um, that's, that's, that's eerie. And there's a grief to that as well. Yeah. Um, the other question I had for you, Dan, too. Um, Americans like to fight wars on things. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, we have the war on drugs. We have the war on terror. War on poverty. Um, War on poverty, yeah, right, right, and and these are audacious claims. I mean, it's very American in that way, right? It's it's we're gonna we're gonna do this right because again, it goes back to my point. I think Americans historically are good at looking forward, not looking back. Mm -hmm. um, we're you know we've always looked forward um, and not looking back as well. That's why it's harder for guys like you and I to find jobs. <laughs> and so in Europe, they want they want to talk to us all the time, but here. But anyway, this, this idea, I keep hearing this war on Corona, and, and I totally get it, but I, I'm curious if you think that's helpful language, or is there better language to use? Historically, have we, can we say that's not always been the best way to talk about this? Yeah, that's interesting you say that. Um, yeah, I think the World War II is, has taught us a lot. I don't think we were all that optimistic about war in 1866 or 1867. Um, or even 1919. I don't, I don't think war ended. We, we, I know, we, you know, because we really worked to stay out of it by the time the 1930s came around. Uh, but you're right, since World War II, we've had this idea, there's a, there's a, and I know, I know Johnson had this sort of Americans can do anything sort of thing. So maybe a bit of an overconfidence or, yeah, even by labeling it a war, it's something that can be won. Um, it's an enemy that can be destroyed. Do you feel it's in, do you feel the overconfidence is the problem, or do you feel the very metaphor itself becomes problematic? Well, one, it can create overconfidence, and I, it, and I, my my concern with it sometimes is when I think a war and we're going to win the war, uh, I picture uh, as a historian, I picture uh, MacArthur taking the uh, the surrender papers from the generals of Japan or the the Nazi generals in in World War II. And now, you know, now, now we need to build a Marshall plan or something to rebuild them. But we, you know, they, they're done. It's over. And right. then we're going to go home. We're going to have ticker tape parades. Sailors are going to kiss nurses in, on Times Square. And we've won, right? It's over. We've won. And when I look at, say, the war on poverty, I don't think we ever win the war on poverty. You never eradicate poverty. There's always going to be that. I mean, Jesus says that. Right. Uh, there's always going to be disease. There's always going to be pestilence. Um, there's always going to be and the war on drugs. We've spent billions of dollars incarcerated millions of people. Uh, and should we rather say that this is just part of what it's like to live in a fallen world, but there's never going to be an unconditional surrender. You know, I don't get a little tiny microphone with the coronavirus that would come up and say that, hey, that, it, it, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe when we open up to the, the Q&A, people have a different perspective. But at least when I hear this idea of war on something, yeah. uh, I understand. I understand exactly. I do think disease certain diseases can be eradicated. Right. We, we have had the technology and we should attempt to do that. So I don't I don't want to belittle that. But I also don't want us to think that with our technology, we can wipe out all the effects of the fall. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm glad. Yeah, that's good that you say that. I, I think when I, when I think of that term, it's really what we're warring is our frailty. We're really not, I mean, yeah, we're attacking the bug, 
but we're ultimately trying to defeat our frailty, right? We're trying to find some way to insulate us. And so, yeah, I, I think your point's a good one, that, that if we indicate the enemy is the coronavirus, then we've somehow come to believe that if we've defeated it, we've somehow saved ourselves or insulated ourselves. Um, I remember years ago when I worked in a hospital um, as a grant writer and administrator, we would do these lunch and learns, which I didn't come up with. I had to fund them, but they, I hated them. But you would invite people to come into a nice lunch and then the doctor would come up with a slideshow and start talking about liver cancer. It was, a, it was very dyspeptic. The whole experience was horrible. But uh, in, one, in one case, a doctor was talking about heart health and, and the question kept raising, well, how can I extend my life? And the doctor actually sort of folded over the podium for a second. He said, he said people, I can tell you to do everything right and you'll die. You, you could eat hamburgers and smoke until you're 90 and you can survive. If what you're looking for is a solution to not dying, he said, I don't have it for you. All I can say is there's a general idea of here's some things that might help. And I, I think the sort of air was let out of the room that somehow the doctor had failed them. And I, I wondered whether people didn't come because they were going to get some secret. And I think that's what we're all doing. We're all online trying to get some doctor in you know, Hungary who said, I can figure this out and get it solved. Yeah. But we're really not upset with Corona. We're really upset with the fact that we're starting to face our own frailty. Mm. And we don't like that. And I think this becomes anti-gospel at a point. Not, not, and I think you're right. Not that we don't go out and try to solve diseases. Yeah, yeah. But it's anti-gospel. Negotiation. Right, right, right. Exactly. It's part of negotiation. How do I address something that's, that's harmful without conceding that my entire goal is to stop people from dying or yeah. stop poverty or stop people from drugs? This isn't going to happen. Yeah. So how do I love people as a way of not solving all the problems but pointing them to the Christ who is the resurrection yeah. so that their hope gets affixed and I think this goes back to my earlier point about the two hopes. How do we negotiate? And maybe, maybe if you can help us, if there's a way you could tell us how, to, how do we negotiate between these two hopes? We don't want to abandon one or the other. We can't just say, I care only about your body, not about your soul. I care about your soul, not about your body. So we've got we've to do both of these somehow. And I think you're right. I don't think the war model allows us a clear picture of doing both of those things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I wonder too, if the, if the war model... Um, can be harmful in uh, part of what I'm seeing is this. I think we're so, as a society, realize we are so vulnerable. And, mm. and in fact, you know, you, I've heard people say something to the effect like, uh, in fact, I was in a meeting uh, today, a Zoom meeting before this, and the meeting, we meet every six weeks with this organization. And they said, wow, could have predicted this six weeks ago. <laughs> and, and, and so for the first time, we're now talking in this other meeting um, about, financial issues that was not even on the radar six months ago, right. six weeks ago. Um, and so the, the sort of the, the vulnerability has been emerged, not just that the, something like this can actually wreck the stock market and my 401k and, and, and there's a sense of this vulnerability that's been brought out to light right. uh, and shows just how frail the global economy and my 401k is. Right. Uh, and so I think that's, that, that's certainly part of this. So hold on. I want to ask you, I'm going to break in here, Mark, and ask you a tough question. And I'm glad I got to it first because I can make you answer it. So looking back at the church, you've studied it. You've studied it maybe more in the early modern period than in the, but you're a historian, so you've been across the map. What can we learn from the life of the church in the past to help the church now? Because I, I think we can think as Americans, we can think as moderns, we can think as all sorts of things but really Christ has called us his body and part of the church. So how does the church learn from its past to walk out into this moment? Yeah. Yeah. You have well, two and a half seconds. Okay. Okay. Can I phone a friend? <laughs> uh, you can buy more um, time. I, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm at my defending my, uh, doing my comps for my PhD. Right. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I spend a lot of time uh, studying uh, social reform, how the church is engaged in social reform. And, and one of the things I think is that the church has always been able to be flexible. Um, so for instance, the idea of a hospital is something churches thought about in the Middle Ages. Um, the idea of, my wife has me watching a show, a BBC show, called Call the Midwife. It's about Anglican, uh, Anglican um, a convent who, who he serves in the Lower East End um, and, and provides medical care to people. So the, the church historically, even though they've lived in this tension, they've still seen it as their job to help their neighbor and to ease as much suffering as possible for their neighbor. 
so I think that's something that when this is all said and done, we're going to have to figure out new ways to do this because the world's just changed on us. The same way uh, that um, the people we studied in our dissertations in the 19th century, how they would have handled an epidemic looks very different than how we're going to handle an epidemic today. One of the ways we're able to serve the epidemic today is by not going out and trying to help people. It's hard for us because we want to do stuff, um, right? And so this idea that we're moving our church online, we're moving these these things in this way, because all of a sudden now social distancing is the best thing we can do, which there's been some really funny memes where people I've seen where people have said, like, I thought when the apocalypse came, I would be like an armor fighting. I didn't think I'd be Netflix and chill. (laughs) And so... So, it's, so I think that's been a tension for people, but I think part of it is the, 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 the church is to love your neighbor, to love yeah. your neighbors yourself. And how that looks in different contexts and different cultures is, 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 is important. Yeah. And I think, but we can mine, we can mine this rich 2000 year history of how the church, uh, I think one of the early, one of the favorite books is Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity. Uh, I mean, when, when plague would break out, the church, the Christians would be the first ones there. Right. right. Um, you know, when, when, when babies were being aborted and thrown down the side of the road, the Christians just picked up the babies nobody wanted. So right. there's, and, and of course, it's not that it doesn't work the same way in the United States today, but we're going to have to find new ways. But I do think mining our past and, and, and looking at the creativity and, and looking at the heart uh, and, and even looking at the warts, some of the mistakes we've made in the past, I think, is going to be really helpful. But I, I think my encouragement to, to, the, to the church is don't just keep looking forward, but mine, let's mine our past yeah. and see what's so valuable there to say, we're not the first Christians to go through this. Right. You know, we're just the first Christians to go through this with antibiotics. <laughs> um, so... Yeah. How can we do that? So I, that's, that's kind of where I, I, I look for that. And I think there's multiple ways to do that. Now, I, think that that's, I think that's great. I, 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 believe, I agree with you. I think what the church has failed for all the wonderful things it has done. And I think the, the church does great work. I think yeah. even, even today it's doing great work. But I think you're right. I think it's, um, it's even got caught up a little bit in the idea that it can solve problems in new ways rather than really looking back to the wisdom of the church in the past. And and the fact that none of us is getting out of this alive, right? This is, this is the one ride none of us are getting off alive. It's, it's yeah. Really work. And I, I think we've, we have, the church has even at times in its best delivered a false message that somehow if you get this all right, this is going to work out wonderful. And I think one thing the church has said from the beginning is Christ's kingdom isn't of this world. It's certainly to this world. There's no doubt about that. Christ was very clear about that. But the kingdom is not of that. And I was, I was talking to my pastor a couple of weeks ago about the courage I see in Christians in the past when they face things, not that there wasn't pain, not that there wasn't suffering, but there was a courage. And I wonder in myself whether the courage was they had such a, a clear view of what the kingdom was mm-hmm. and such an understanding that this world wasn't it, mm-hmm. that that gave them a courage to face it. And I think if anything, where the modern church has not looked back is in modern times, we start to think this is the kingdom and we're pretty close, you know, darn close. Um, it's almost like a modern post-millennialism in a sort of sense. And because of that, we've just lost the heart to say to people, look, I don't want you to run away from your frailty. I actually want you to run into it. I want you to engage it because in that moment, the way that Job did, you're going to find out who this God is. Yeah. And then your, then your treasure ends up in a world where it cannot rust and corrode. And that's not the same as you know, disappearing from the world and not caring. I think you're right. The church has always cared. And I'm adding to what you said, not contradicting, because I think you're absolutely correct. That's what the church has done. But in its ability to run out and help, it's always done as a way of pointing to the ultimate savior, who is Christ, not the medicine, not the food, not the comfort. Everything we do now is temporary, but we do it pointing to that which is permanent. So I think the church has always done that. Another thing the church can help us do is is the church always has to be countercultural. In the early church, uh, it was scandalous for Christians to go and take care of people who didn't belong to their tribe. You just didn't do that in that culture. In our culture, I think what well, we can be really countercultural is not to buy into the polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and because everybody's looking for someone to blame for this, right? And we know, okay, yes, there, God works and means there are, there's a problem if there's a lack of masks and there's a problem with it and we need to deal with that stuff. But sometimes this idea of looking for someone to blame also leads to some really unhealthy things, right? And so we're starting to see 
uh, Asian Americans being abused yeah. um, because I, so I think we can if because we kind of under we kind of have a sense of a cosmic understanding of what's happening in the world right um that yes there's 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 people who will be called to account for different things and that's that's justice that's fair but on the other hand uh we where we can be helpful is we're not really to play the binary we, we realize there's new, needs to be some nuance here right um and i think that's healthy and i think that as like we said there's a, there's a negotiation right we, we belong to the kingdom of god and we're living in the kingdom of man there's a negotiation there it's not a polarization right um, and so i think in the same way in this where people are scared and when people are scared they act out they do crazy things you know so during world war one you weren't allowed to listen to bach or beethoven because that was german right what really wow uh, in World War II, we, 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 we put Japanese people in, in, in internment camps. I mean, people do things like this. Um, and so you can have the same similar kind of thing here. And so that's where I think we as the church need to be um, winsome, but also need to be not fall, in for, not fall for that. Right. No, I think that's, that's good. It's, there's a lot to learn. Uh, one thing that I hope you're hearing from this conversation is we're learning. We're not... Yeah, we don't have we don't have answers on this stuff. We're we're trying to learn. I think that's what God calls us to is to be open to the leading of the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches in all sorts of ways. The Scriptures are pretty clear that through judgment and difficulty, through blessing, are all different ways that God can teach us, refine our souls, grow us up um, into who He wants us to be. And so, we don't want to we don't want to shut things off. And I think that goes to the polarization. We shut people off. We shut problems off, rather than look into them. And it can be difficult if in, if in our own family, I've got a very good friend from the church who's got coronavirus and his daughter now has it. And we're grieving as a family to try to figure out how to love them. Um, and we have to look that in the face. And as we do it, God is going to grow us. And the one thing we're sure of is even if things get really difficult, God is not gone. Um, we know from, from the death of Lazarus, God is not gone when Lazarus dies. God's not gone when our, our world falls apart. It makes us cling to him all the more. And um, I think that's what we have to learn. And I think that's the beauty of the church, right? We, yeah. we have each other. That's part of the body of Christ. We can learn from each other. Those believe I've learned so much from my, my, my brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world and have other realities. And so we need to hear from this. So I think this is actually a good segue to, to open up for questions. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you wanted to push back on some things that Dan and I said, or you had some questions or comments, we want to kind of make that available. So, uh, if you do want to ask a question, you can do it in the chat, or if you want to do it verbally, you can turn on your camera and turn on your microphone and fire away. So I'm going to leave we will, uh, Mark said that while the interim begins, he will sing an aria from his favorite, um, his favorite opera. So I'll sing Bach and Beethoven. My, my, yeah, my advice to all of you is to jump in and say something quick before Mark gets going on that. And if there's no thoughts, that's okay too. Um, yeah. I don't want to feel that you have to. But I think, I think while we're waiting for somebody, I do want to say, I think this has been helpful. And I, what, what you just said about the church and community, I found in conversation, dialogue, in sharing with other people burdens and difficulties, um, I've grown more as a Christian uh, in a lot of this. It's not, it's not hiding off in my study and trying to think through things and read. It's been this conversation and with others as well. I think that's been very helpful. Um, okay, so one question that came in is, um, I love the reference to Job and Ecclesiastes. Why are we so slow as the Western church to read this philosophical framework? Matthew, that is a brilliant question. Um, uh, boy, that's a huge question too. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take just a quick stab at it, Mark, and give you a chance to sort of ruminate. You should really save that for someone in the Bible department. <laughs> yeah, I think you're asking the wrong people here. <laughs> no, but I think, I think as I've, as I've come through my own evangelical past, it took me a long time into my adulthood to actually engage things like Ecclesiastes. Um, and I, I don't know if it's sort of the post-millennial or pre-millennial bent in us that we are either trying to escape the world or embrace it without realizing that it's something Christ calls us through. And I, I think also that the incarnation and atonement as the early church understood it were very lively things. For us, they'd become redemption. And I don't mean that's bad. I think that the idea that the point of the atonement is to redeem our sins and take us to eternity is correct, but it's only really half the truth. The other half of the truth is that when Christ comes in the flesh, he brings life to all flesh. Jesus says, I came to give you life and give it more abundantly. So the incarnation and the, and the crucifixion have a redemptive purpose, but they also have a much broader purpose. And that purpose is in the way we live, in the way we interact with each other. We embrace our frailty. We embrace difficulty. We embrace 
even, even death in our midst. And I think what Ecclesiastes has helped me do is say, death isn't unusual. In fact, without Christ in the resurrection, death is the only thing that exists, right? Everything else is a fraud because everything ends up in death, no matter what you do. Um, but in reality, with Christ as the crucifixion, he takes on death. Death is not something now that is our ultimate reality. It's our penultimate reality. Yeah. Um, but it's not something that we're going to escape just because we're Christians. And I, that's something that sort of dawned on me even late. And I don't know, Mark, if that's your experience, but my evangelical upbringing, I would have spent many, much more time in Romans. I knew Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. I couldn't spell it. That was the only two things I knew about it. Two, two things I'll, I'll say. So yes, I'll agree with that. I think part of it too is, and I've been processing this recently um, through this experience. And, and, and one of the things I've, I've, I've really, I, I enjoy reading the Puritans. I read them devotionally. Uh, I'm a huge fan of John Owen. And John Owen has this comment, and I'm paraphrasing that, uh, that we can learn the truths of God. Romans is very good for learning the truths of God and, and getting you know, your, your theology right. But it takes experience in the Holy Spirit to take those truths and push them down into your heart. Um, and so I think that um, experiences like this actually help us do this. But it's, it's harder with Ecclesiastes and, and Job and Proverbs. Uh, and I'm going to use Tim Keller on this one. Tim Keller refers to Proverbs as the hard candy of the word. You know, it's, it's not the milk of the word. It's a, you don't just chew on it. You got to suck on it and to really get something out of it. And I think that's part of Ecclesiastes and Job too. You, you almost have to sit alone with it and, and allow it to kind of penetrate you and, and dig into it. Um, and that's hard for us. I think the other pieces too, I wonder if how many Western Christians have trouble with Joe because it doesn't end happily. With, you know, it's not wrapped up in 20 minutes, yeah. uh, like a sitcom. So I think it, it's hard for us. I think, I actually think if you, you used a very important language there, uh, Michael, you, Matthew, you said Western. Um, so may, is there something about the culture and intellectual and philosophical understanding and the way the West operates compared to the East uh, or in Africa. And so, for instance, I, I think if you ask that question to maybe some African Christians, they'd say, what are you talking about? We do that all the time. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think you, you've tapped onto something there that has something to do with who we are as Westerners. Yeah, and let me, and while, while we're waiting, anybody else can jump in here just to fill the gap. I, I've done this with my kids as I've been wrestling through. We read Ecclesiastes as a family, sort of fun, again, light reading in the evening, sort of gets the kids all happy and excited. But the, the question keeps coming, what is wisdom? And the kids had kept asking, what is wisdom? I said, I think in the church, we want it to be common sense, or we want it to be escapism. You know, we're going to come to Christ and escape this world. But what Ecclesiastes says is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. That's what all the wisdom literature says, which means that God is the ultimate reality. And when you start thinking that way, you realize that everything here is only in service to him. And so if you fear God, you've got nothing else to fear in one sense. And so it's a constant dragging our mind, not out of this world, but through this world to see that God is the one that holds the soul. And therefore we need to relocate our fear from things like Corona and this world into the other. And I, I think while that's hard, particularly for evangelicals, is we were born at a time of post-millennialism and the, in the colonial period. And the world was something to be overcome. We were gonna make it better and perfect and wonderful. And at the end of the 19th century, we gave into premillennialism, which has its, has its own biblical power, but it tends to teach us as a worldview that the world is, is just is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and therefore escape becomes the only route. We wanna get out of this world. Um, but in a sense, Ecclesiastes doesn't let us off the hook in those two ways. Um, you, it, it does call us to enjoy our labor. And under the sun, go out and do it. But don't think for a minute that all of your labor is going to mean the next generation is going to be better off than you are. And I think in America, in the West as evangelicals, those are hard things to accept. And I think where Ecclesiastes becomes a corrective is it doesn't take us out of the world. It doesn't make us invest in the world necessarily. It balances our view that our job is to bring everything in worship to God, knowing full well that at some point when death comes through that do that doorway of death and we move into his kingdom and that's where our real hope is. So yeah. I think you're right. E evangelicals have struggled with those books, I think in, in the modern period. But. Yeah. And, and I think we struggle with, with lament. Um, I think that's pain right. is something that's we right. want to get rid of. That's right. um, yeah. I said this earlier too. I said, I think that um, 
there's a possibility that because we've lived in the last hundred years, there's a part of us that doesn't expect to suffer physically uh, in the West yet, yet. I would say statistically, and student affairs could probably speak to this better than us. They, they see these statistics even more than historians see it. The, the increase in anxiety, depression, it's almost as if we expect to suffer emotionally. Um, that we almost expect, right? It's like, it's uh, almost uh, part of the questionnaire. What, what antidepressants are you on and who's your counselor? Um, so that part we, we, we kind of wrestle with. And, but physical stuff, we, we don't like, and we always want to try to get rid of it as quick as possible, opposed to how do I, what can I do with lament? What is God doing with lament in me or in us as a church or in us as a people? Um, I think in the Old Testament, um, there's, a, there's a great book on the Psalms and Lament where it's just expected that you, I mean, there's lamenting Psalms, right? That, that's what they're there for. They, they show that, that tension within the human emotion that at one point trusts God with their very lives, yet at the same time doesn't understand why their enemies are destroying them. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're, so it's that, that tension. That's great. Any other questions or comments? No one's on the spot, but I, I do, I do want to give you all an opportunity to ask anything or for clarity or anything like that. I think you can begin singing now, Mark. Okay. All right. Well, then we're going to end it here. Yeah. Um, and so you're welcome to, you know, if, if questions come up later, you know where we are. Uh, you can certainly ask us then. Hey, it was a pleasure uh, talking with you, Dan. It was a pleasure yeah. seeing everybody. Before you cut that off, just one second, I just want to remind everyone listening that we're going to do this again at two next week. Student Services is going to get a hold of this um, if you're watching, and they're going to post it so it can be viewed. So look out for a social media post uh, with the link to the recording or um, at least uh, communicate through the, through the college. And then... Next week, can we confirm who we have next week, Mark? Uh, not yet. Not no, yet. still a mystery guest. Good. That's what yeah. I hold it out. We Maybe we should do like the like not even see their face until the end. The only, the <laughs> well, they, just, they do the singers in the masks, right? Like I know. Yeah, yeah. We put something on his or her face, and then do it yeah. that way. Yeah. Maybe they can guess. Maybe that'll be the Q and A period. But we can't. By the time we promote it, we should know who it is. Good, and that'll that'll come up next week. So thank you all for being here. Yeah. Um, if you have any other questions or thoughts about what we're doing here, please forward them to Mark or myself so we can learn. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mark. Have a great day. Great weekend.